I was reading this morning on remedies for a hoarse voice. One of the first things I saw was, don't talk very loud or very long. Which, given my morning, was perplexing to follow, to say the least. (laughs) So, just ask for your understanding and prayer also that the Lord would preserve at least some vestige of this voice for the sermon, and then afterwards I'm, I'm glad to go full signing. <clears throat> if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18 and verse 24. Charles Spurgeon says, when God speaks, it is the delight of our ears to hear what he says. With that in mind, let's read Acts 18, beginning in verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. When I was younger, my mom told me that water natural bodies of water have to flow somewhere 
and flow to somewhere. They have to have, to have an inflow and an outflow. And she said, you know, people are the same way. People need people speaking into their life, and they need other people that they can speak to. They need to receive ministry, and they need to give ministry. Without that, there is stagnation or emptiness. And I think this passage, it's a beautifully simple description of that happening in the early church. We have this zealous man, Apollos, who will become a mighty preacher for the gospel, uh, he is referenced in Paul's letters as a beloved brother. He is said to have uh, basically watered where Paul planted in Corinth in the book of 1 Corinthians. So he's this mighty preacher, but in this snapshot of him, he is somewhat uneducated. He seems to be a Christian, but he lacks a full understanding of the teaching about Jesus. And so he's helped by this dear couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They kind of take him under their wing. Then Paul, in the next snapshot, meets these disciples of John the Baptist. They seem to be genuinely, sincerely seeking to follow God according to an even more narrow understanding. In fact, they haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. They don't seem to have an understanding of John's ministry of pointing to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So Paul disciples them. And then we have Paul going... Uh, all over to Ephesus and preaching the gospel as he always does and using two years worth of teachings to try to bring the word of God to those who are willing to listen. So throughout the passage, there's this, this wonderful interplay of various people in the church uh, taking others and bringing them into contact with God's word and the gospel such that they can grow in the faith. And that's really what we see throughout the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, there's this sense that the, the, the church of God is called to this ministry of discipleship. It looks like evangelism. It looks like explanation. It looks like invitation. It looks like exhortation. There's this ministry of helping people come into a relationship with Jesus and then helping them in that relationship to grow more and more in their knowledge and love of him. That's, that's the normal mode of God's mission. We might say that gospel discipleship is God's method for gospel advance. Let me say that again. Gospel discipleship, the training and helping and educating and encouraging and exhorting, that's what discipleship is. Gospel discipleship, it's shaped by the gospel. That's the primary content of this discipleship. It is God's method for gospel advance. God does not send angelic heralds from heaven uh, to proclaim a message and then to invite crowds to respond. That is not God's method. There isn't a big skyhook bullhorn that drops down out of Saturn and preaches gospel. Uh, messages to people so that they respond and come. No, he, he, he commissions Christians, Christian ministers, and even in this passage, ordinary Christians to help other people to learn about Jesus and to grow in the faith. That is God's method for advancing the gospel. Gospel discipleship is God's method for gospel advance. And, and that lays claim on us. This passage is talking to the early church about people that they knew. They knew Apollos. At that point, when it's written, uh, he's probably a very well-known preacher of the gospel. And, and we have this somewhat uh, kind of affectionate early picture of him as this zealous, educated young man needing a little more training from this couple that very kindly offers to help him in their home. 
We have Paul coming across these disciples, and you can feel this in the church saying, look, you might encounter people like this. These might be the kind of people that, that you bump into. And we want to give you a snapshot of what you can do to advance the gospel when you encounter this kind of situation. You're called to gospel discipleship for the purpose of gospel advancing around the world. You're called to this. You're part of this. You and I are part of this mission, this method for seeing the gospel advance. And I want to reference three aspects of gospel discipleship that I think we see in this passage. The first is education for the passionate. Now, I always want to make a, a point when, as often as I can, when I'm preaching, all I'm trying to do is describe what the passage is doing. So there's not, not some like, tricky thing here about exegetical preaching. All, all we're doing is we're looking at this passage and we're saying, okay, what, what do I think the main point of this is? How would I summarize this opening section? Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervent in spirit. And, important note, he spoke accurately about the things concerning Jesus, but he only knew the baptism of John. So we have this picture of Apollos where he is, he is fervent in spirit. We don't know if that's his spirit or the Holy Spirit's not quite clear. But we know that he spoke accurately, but somewhat in a limited fashion about Jesus. So he understood about Jesus. It seems, that, it seems likely that he had become a believer and he had this background of education and he was very fervent in spirit, so he's just launched himself uh, into speaking. He, he, he perhaps is, is recently converted. Maybe he had some uh, limited message about Jesus, and he believed, and he responds, and he wants others to know. So he just starts talking. And you can imagine him. You've probably met people like that, where they have a, maybe they, they've come across a dynamic but, but narrow understanding, and they just first thing they want to do is go tell everybody about it. They, they want to go tell everybody. They want to tell their friends and their relatives and, and Aunt, Aunt Lindsay and, and everything. They just want to let everyone know, look, look, do you realize about this Jesus? He's the Messiah. But then you, you press a little deeper and you realize, okay, you, you have, you, your, your knowledge needs to be expanded. Some of the things you're saying uh, are, are a little bit narrow. We, we need to help you gain an understanding. That seems to be the picture here. He has fervency. He does have some accuracy, but at some level he knows only the baptism of John. Now, now Luke doesn't elaborate. We don't know if that means he, he doesn't fully realize that people have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. If they're to believe in the Messiah, we don't know if he's referencing the baptism of the Holy Spirit where you need to be able to explain the new covenant blessing and gift of Jesus, that this is the establishment of a new people of God headed under Christ. Luke doesn't elaborate. He just says, look, he only knew about the baptism of John, but he was speaking accurately about Jesus. So, so somehow he, he knew enough about Jesus to have believed in him and would even preach about him accurately, but he also had some limited knowledge about baptism, whether of the Spirit or of baptism in Jesus. So there's, there's, a, there's a naivety uh, attached to his zeal at some level. Again, let's make a point about exegeting passage of Scripture. Where the Bible doesn't speak, it's best to focus on what does it say. So spending lots of time speculating, okay, precisely what was Apollos' mistake. Doesn't seem to be Luke's concern. 
He doesn't elaborate. So I don't think we should spend um, you know, tons of time trying to figure out, okay, well, how could he know accurately about Jesus but only the baptism of John? I don't know. And Luke doesn't seem concerned that we would know. The, the main concern seems to be he was accurate, but he was misinformed about a few things. That seems to be the picture here. And he was very zealous. But then here's the, the point that I think I want to zero in on. Notice what happens down there in verse 26. Priscilla and Aquila, this wonderful couple that we met just a couple weeks ago, that will be this marvelous pillars for the gospel. What do they do? They listen to this young preacher, and they don't do what is commonly the case today among social media tribes and online evaluation and even public declamation. What they don't do is say, Oh, he's zealous, but woefully inadequate. Passionate and poor in his content. No, they don't do that. What do they do? They go to him personally and say, we'd like to have you over for dinner. Can we invite you over? We, we see potential in you. We, we see some, man, wonderful. We're, we're excited about what God's, we, we just would love to maybe explain a, a few things that we, we think might help you. And isn't it wonderful to see Apollos Unlike many people who have zeal but a limited knowledge, not dismissing their entreaty, not saying, man, who do you think you are? You know where I'm from. I'm from Alexandria. You know Alexandria is one of the great learning centers of the ancient world? I got nothing to learn from you. You're leather workers. Isn't this an interesting kind of juxtaposition? We have, so to speak, a white-collar background man who comes to leather workers and humbly receives from them the knowledge that they're able to give him in a greater way about Jesus. They're not ashamed of their probably uneducated type of background. They're boldly and compassionately wanting to help this zealous young preacher. And this zealous young preacher is very willing to learn and receive from them. Wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. That, that's the way it should be. Those that are zealous in ministry should be willing to learn from those that perhaps are not going to have their scope of ministry or even gifting, but do have knowledge that they can impart. There's this humility that should characterize those with zeal. Let me just say to those of you, especially who are young, maybe you might even have a call to some kind of ministry. You want to imitate Apollos' zeal. Apollos' eventual ministry cannot be divorced from Aquila and Priscilla's discipleship. Zeal without full knowledge is dangerous. Of course, knowledge without zeal is dangerous. But zeal without knowledge, without humility, without the ability to learn is dangerous. So what, what do we, how do we take this and kind of apply it to ourselves? We're unlikely to encounter somebody who knows only the baptism of John. But, but we may know somebody who has the same characteristic of, of being zealous, but, but somewhat uninformed. And our reaction should not be to mock or to belittle them or to dismiss them. It should be to appeal to them, to entreat them. And if we are zealous, our desire to be, should be to be like Apollos and to learn and receive from those who are trustworthy in their teaching. This, this passage it just describes this, this beautiful picture of the church at work, educating the passionate, receiving knowledge from the mature. That's what the church should always look like. Let me just make a, a caution. Because of the proliferation of Christian teaching through books and websites and blogs and so forth, choose your teachers wisely. The goal here is an accurate knowledge of the gospel. There are many people willing to educate, 
but only those who accurately know the gospel of Jesus Christ should educate. So don't educate yourself only at the feet of those who claim to have knowledge. Ask some questions. Do you believe in the inerrancy of God's word? Do you believe in the unity of God's word around the person and work of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that the, the, the Bible is our authority for faith and practice? Do you believe in the doctrines of God's grace? Ask yourself some of these questions to ensure if you're zealous and you're wanting to be educated that they're going to be like Aquila and Priscilla and accurately teach you what the scriptures say. Many people reference the Bible who do not treat the Bible accurately, unlike Aquila and Priscilla in this passage. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? It's going to be played out countless times in the life of the church, in this church. Let me say something to you if, if you are, have been a Christian for a number of years. It is your responsibility to keep growing in the gospel so that you can one day help the young and zealous. It is not sufficient for a Christian to reach a place where they know enough to keep themselves in the faith. It is our calling to look for ways we continue to grow in our knowledge, in our skill, in our training, so that we can look to help others to grow in their knowledge. We might come across some young, zealous preacher who has a great future in ministry, but right now, he's just some young guy in our care group. And he needs us to be able to say, well, have you considered the book of Galatians? Let's go through it together. I've studied it, and I think I can help you. Wonderful pattern for us to not plateau in our calling to educate others. Let me say this to, to older women, whether you're older in the faith or older in life. Titus 2 makes it very clear that the older women are, are, are to look for ways where they can accurately describe the gospel for younger women in the application of that young woman's life. This is a calling that you have. Older men, you have a calling to look for ways to educate yourself. I think one of the great dangers for gospel discipleship in the church is a plateauing of faithful educating of ourselves in God's word and good Christian books. We want to be like Aquila and Priscilla so that we can help an Apollos if he should ever come across our path or a lot of mini Apolloses that might come along our, in our way. This is our calling as believers to disciple. Gospel discipleship is God's method for gospel advance. We're all called to this. We're all called to receive it. We're all called to give it. I was talking to Mike Stelic a little, a little while ago, and he was just saying, you know, I, I just want to keep learning. I don't want to plateau. Can you recommend any things I can read? So I gave him a list of like five books. I said, look, these are just solid, solid, trustworthy, doctrinally trustworthy. So he bought all of them, and he started reading all of them at once. I said, that's fantastic. I love it. I wish I could appeal to everyone in the church. So don't, don't just read things. I, I can recommend 100 solid gold books that have been written over the last 400 years since the Reformation. And before that, if you want to go to the Church Fathers, I can recommend stuff for that too. But these ones are a little easier to read. So the last 400 years, I can recommend these books. Don't, don't go browsing out there for the most popular books, the ones that have five stars. Look, there's proven classics of the faith that are more than could ever be read in a lifetime. Read that stuff. Read the solid gold. Don't, don't read the stuff that you've got to filter out a half of it to get the other half. Don't start there. Start with solid gold, and then when you've exhausted all of that, which you, we never will, then you can move your way to the stuff where like half of this was good and half of this was questionable. Read solid gold. 
And if you need help recommending it, I can give a, a hundred, a, 200 recommendations of solid gold Christian classics that, that conform to the orthodox teaching of the gospel in the church. It's worth doing this. Why? Because gospel discipleship is our calling. It is God's method for the advance of the gospel. And look at the fruit. Look at the fruit for Apollos. What happens after they explain the, the, the way of the Lord more accurately to him? What happens to him? He is sent with a commendation from the brothers into Achaia. That's where Corinth was, where Paul just planted the church. And the disciples write to those other disciples to welcome him. He has this kind of ministerial commendation. Wonderful to see. And what happens when he gets there? He helped those through who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures, what? That the Christ was Jesus. What's the result? We have this powerful apologist who stands side by side with the believers in Corinth, and as Paul says later, he waters what Paul sowed. And so the, the pattern, the flow, the river of discipleship, it just continues. It just continues, doesn't it? Now we have this mighty, gifted, young, zealous preacher who is refuting those who are denying the truth of, about Jesus, and he's proclaiming the gospel. He is proclaiming the Messiah that the Jews had always anticipated has come in the person of Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled the Old Testament. He died on a cross. He fulfilled the Levitical sacrificial system such that now our sins have been paid for, and by trusting in his name, we have forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. And Paulos, this little disciple of Aquila and Priscilla, is Reaching. You can imagine their sort of parental pride as they hear about him powerfully refuting the Jews in public, proclaiming Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ is the predicted one. Jesus Christ is the greater Moses. This is the one you have been waiting for, and I can prove it from the scriptures. What, what a wonderful kind of continued flow of that discipleship river. What happens with gospel advance? Gospel discipleship happens so that further gospel discipleship, in public or in private, can happen. That's God's method. It means educating the passionate. It also means, snapshot number two, invitation for the sincere. Invitation for the sincere. Let's keep going. It says in the beginning of 19 that while Apollos was at Corinth... Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. It's also worth noting that it's starting to happen that other people besides Paul are being referenced here. That's good news for the church. It's not limited to Paul. Paul, before very much longer, is going to be imprisoned. And he's not going to be able to preach and speak as freely. So this is good news. The, the gospel expansion isn't limited to Paul. Other things can happen. I think that's instructive for the church. We don't need Paul himself to continue to advance the gospel that Paul founded in the Gentile world. Very important to notice. Now, Paul, as he comes to Ephesus, he finds some disciples. He asks them, and we don't know what the word disciples, again, we don't, we don't know how Luke precisely is using that word. It seems to be followers of God in some sincere way. They apparently have some knowledge of John the Baptist, again, but we'll remember, John the Baptist had this powerful ministry. Jesus said no one had ever been greater than him until Jesus came. So he was this profound preacher. 
many, many people, even as far away as Ephesus, uh, were still the, the, and this is 20 years later, are still the, the ongoing fruit of his ministry. But somehow these disciples, though they knew of John the Baptist and had even decided to uh, be baptized as a follower of John the Baptist's teaching, to kind of declare themselves in allegiance to John the Baptist, they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So it seems that in some level, we, again, we don't know exactly what their background was, but somehow they knew of John the Baptist. Paul asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They say, no, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So that seems to clue Paul in. I, I don't, unlike Apollos, they don't even seem to understand uh, Jesus Christ and the new covenant that he brings, even in a fundamental way. So the distinction might be Apollos had a kind of a basic understanding of the gospel that needed to ex- expand it. It seems that he was a believer. The, these guys uh, seem to have no understanding of Jesus Christ. They need kind of a basic invitation. They seem sincere in their desire to follow God. They're doing what they know, but they lack even a knowledge that there is a Holy Spirit. They were baptized into John's baptism, and Paul perceives they need an invitation of the basic gospel message. So he says in verse 4, Listen, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So what's what's happening here? Again, it seems that Luke is describing a somewhat unique scenario where you had sincere people who had heard about John the Baptist but had not yet come into an awareness of Jesus Christ and they had not been converted in the full New Testament sense. Now, obviously, this is somewhat unique. We're not going to bump into people who would say, well, I was baptized you know, under John the Baptist's ministry. We're not going to bump into those kind of people today. Um, but we, we, again, we may come across a similar kind of person who has a sincere expression of wanting to follow God in, in some very limited way. But as we ask questions of them and ask the kinds of questions that Paul is getting to, namely, do you, do you know the reality of God in your life? God's presence comes to all of those who believe in Jesus. And they say, we don't even know anything about that. They don't say, well, sometimes I struggle and I, I don't always, you know, follow, I don't, you know, follow the way I know I should. No, no, that isn't this answer. The answer is we don't even know anything about that. We've never even heard about that. We've never even heard that God, by the Spirit, comes to those who belong to Jesus Christ. Well, what, how, what, what were you baptized into? Well, John the Baptist. And they might say today, well, I, I, I don't know. I, I was following some teacher somewhere, and, and I, I heard something about, you know, it's good to follow after God. Okay, well, can can I just give you the invitation that there is a man. His name is Jesus Christ. And in this case, he's saying, John the Baptist, actually, you're very one that you're following. His main mission was to point to Jesus as the greater one to come. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, well, well, then you'll receive the very presence of God and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That these people are sincere, that this is wonderful news. This seems to be uh, kind of news to them. So they are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul lays his hands on them. They immediately begin prophesying and speaking in tongues. So again, Luke is at pains to point out those who believe in Jesus receive the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
that was initiated at Pentecost, this new covenant gift of the Spirit that is manifested in various gifts of the Spirit, in this case prophesying in tongues, perhaps not that way for every Christian, according to 1 Corinthians, but certainly in this case, prophesying in tongues kind of reveals to them the difference between a sincere following of God and the full encounter of God's presence that takes place when someone is baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They are sincere, but they need the invitation of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I think we could easily encounter people like this. Easily. I mean, there are people all over the place that if you ask them what they think about God, they are generally positive. There's some people that aren't. There's some people that say, I don't, I'm not into that God thing at all. I don't like God. But there's other people that say, well, I'm going to try to follow God. What do you mean by that? Well, I, you, know, I, you know, I just try to be in touch with God, and I, I think there's something bigger than us, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, follow them the best I can. Or you might bump into somebody that has a sort of a Christian background. You know, as a kid, I went to Baptist Bible study camp, and, you know, they had this thing about Noah's Ark and everything, and you know, I thought, you know, I should follow God like Noah, and so I, you know, I try to be good and, and do the right thing and, and follow after God. And, and you just begin to discern this person has no experience of the power of God in their life. And they, they don't even, I'm not sure they even know really about the gospel. They talk a lot about morality, and they talk a lot about kind of doing the right thing, but they don't, they don't really, I don't sense that their sincerity is true conversion. And so I need to, I, I need to talk to them. Do you know, can I just talk to you about Jesus? This can happen in the church, People that have a kind of a sense that they should go to church. I mean, that, that happens all the time. And if, if you're here and you just kind of came in because you, you want to go to church, welcome. We're glad you're here. But there is a difference between kind of going to church or sort of following God in a general way and knowing Jesus Christ and receiving the very presence of God come upon you because you believe in him. There's a difference. That's what Paul's doing with these believers very graciously. He says, look, can I just invite you to believe in Jesus as your personal Savior? And if you believe in him, you will receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that God himself dwells within you. Let me, let me invite you. Let me encourage you to believe in this way. It's wonderful. What, what's happening again here? Gospel, discipleship. Paul doesn't relate to them in quite the same way that he relates to the people at the Areopagus in Athens who know nothing about the Jewish scriptures, at least uh, not in the same way the Jews did. He, he's, he's ready to relate to people where they are right now, and what is consistent is he brings all of those people into a greater knowledge of Jesus Christ, and he prays for them to encounter the presence of God and the Holy Spirit, which is what they, which is what they do. Now, brothers and sisters, all of us have opportunity to do the same thing. Certainly, those of us that are parents <laughs> often deal with sincere but perhaps unconverted children who know enough to know that following after the right thing and trying to be sincere in their pursuit of God is the way you should live your life, but they have not encountered a personal moment with the gospel, and they certainly don't seem to evidence the power of the Holy Spirit present in their life. Don't we all know experiences of that? If we've worked with children or if we're training our own children, where there's this, there's this sincerity 
in their desire. They, they're, they're sincere. I, I, I want to do the right thing. And yet they need to hear about the gospel. Parents, we must not train children in the, the kind of railroad of morality and bypass the encounter with Jesus Christ as Savior and the Holy Spirit as the power for the Christian life. Successful parenting or spiritual parenting of those younger and around us who are sincere and genuine but uninformed and perhaps unconverted can't be based on the life they live but the person of Jesus Christ present and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their life. Brothers and sisters, we are all called to this. Whether it's our natural children or whether it's people around us who could easily become spiritual children, we are, we are all called to ask the question, do, am I seeing a sincerity that is commendable and should be encouraged, but that needs to receive a fresh invitation of the gospel? Here's the challenge. Sometimes to bring the gospel into the ears of a person who is sincere and assumes that they are good with God to that point can sometimes result in their reaction of, of anger. I've, I've seen this happen sometimes when parents are trying to help um, teenagers or you might talk to somebody else. This is especially true in the Bible Belt because you have to kind of introduce, I, I, I know you're sincere, but, but I'm not confident that you don't need a further invitation to know God in Jesus Christ and to experience the outpouring of his spirit. You seem sincere, but when I ask you about the gospel, you don't seem to be able to reference that in your personal testimony. A lot of what you talk about is how it's important to follow God and, and, and do the right thing and, and go to church. And, and those are all good things, but I'm not hearing a lot about Jesus when you talk about what it means to follow God. And I'm certainly not hearing a lot about how you experience God himself and the person of the Holy Spirit empowering you to live the Christian life. So can I, can I invite you to come to Jesus? To know him. Can I speak this to you? And if it turns out that your faith was, was real, but just very young and small, wonderful, we'll celebrate that. But if it turns out that you're sincere but unconverted, all the better. Let me invite you to express faith in Jesus Christ and to claim the good news of your inheritance of the Spirit that comes to every believer in Jesus. I, I love that this is in narrative form. Because it gives you a sense of the, the reality of the Christian life. It's not like people come to you with a blueprint of how to help them taped to their forehead. I mean, wouldn't that make counseling either? Make my job so much easier. Like if, if, you know, every time you come in to counsel somebody, it's like, ask these four questions and state these three verses for the perfect fix. No, it never comes that way. It comes with like, well, how, how are you doing? Well, here's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm thinking this way. I've been reading this. I've been feeling this way. I've been wondering about this. And you're trying to discern, okay, Okay, where, where, where's the handle? Where, where do we kind of grab a hold of what God's doing here? And so in the narrative form, this section of passages, it gives us like three different kinds of categories. We might bump into, we might bump into the zealous who need to be further educated. We might bump into the sincere who need to be invited perhaps for the first time. And finally, third aspect of evangelism evangelism for those willing to listen. 
But what are the aspects of discipleship we're seeing here? What are the aspects of, of making a difference in people's lives for the advance of the gospel? Well, we, we, we have education for the passionate. We have invitation uh, for the sincere. And we have evangelism for those willing to listen. You notice that Paul, after he has apparently this encounter with these 12 people who are saved and experience this overwhelming experience of the Holy Spirit, he then, as he always does, he enters the synagogue in Ephesus, and for three whole months he speaks boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God speaks to the rule of God that is revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you've ever wondered uh, why is there the reference to the kingdom of God, is that different than the gospel? These things are complementary. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ as Lord has conquered the power of death and that through our belief in him, we can enter into the rule and reign of Jesus Christ that will be finally consummated when he returns. So these things are not contradictory. They come together. When we're preaching the gospel, we are preaching the kingdom, which can only be entered by a spiritual conversion to belief in Jesus Christ. So he's preaching about the kingdom of God that is revealed in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ, but then, predictably, some become stubborn <coughs> and continue in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. One note just for our own hearts, this is talking about unbelievers here, but I, I find that to often be the case with the human heart, saved or unsaved. Stubborn, continuing in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. That is almost always the way the train rolls. Starts with a personal stubbornness. I don't need to hear what you're saying about God's word. Persistent stubbornness of unbelief. I won't believe what God's word says results finally in slandering those who are speaking the truth about God's word and the way. There is, there is no way for that train to stop partial down the tracks. It either rolls one way or the other. You either are listening and humbly receiving God's word, growing in your determination to obey God's word, and then celebrating and proclaiming the good news, or you are stubbornly refusing to receive you are persisting in unbelief about God, and then you are becoming a messenger against God's word. There's only two trains. You're going one way or the other. That's true for every human heart. It's important for us just to notice that. Well, that happens again to Paul in Ephesus. Poor Paul. Every time he's trying to persuade his fellow brothers, Jewish brothers, it's been so difficult for him. These are the people that should know better. They should know better, and yet they are persisting in unbelief. Incredible difficulty that he faced. How disillusioning, how disappointing for Paul. His brothers in the flesh and sisters that refuse, and not only refuse, but begin to attack and antagonize him as he's, as he's simply seeking to speak the good news to them. And eventually, what does he do? Well, the same thing he's done earlier. At a certain point, it seems that unbelief is so hardened and slander and accusation is so aggressive that it, he, he basically believes there, there's no longer even a willingness to listen. I can do no more good. So he goes next door to the hall of Tyrannus. It was some kind of lecturing hall or school. And he uses it or rents it daily for two years. Imagine that, daily. Paul is there daily preaching about Jesus Christ. Daily 
to such a degree that all the residents of Asia. Now, now at some level, the Bible does use general characterizations. It's not the modern-day scientific, you know, one, one, one. This is basically a characterization. Look, he was able to, to preach to, to such a degree that the, it, it was as though every resident of Asia heard the word of the Lord. It was as though everyone, whether from Paul's lips or secondhand, heard about Jesus. This town of Ephesus went from unreached, just a few months earlier apparently, to being almost pervasively reached where people had access to the message of Jesus Christ. And as we know, because of the letter of Ephesus, this would become a church that flourished in the gospel. And that it eventually would need further encouragement from, uh, the, from John the Apostle when he wrote the book of Revelation. So there's this church that's planted here as Paul preaches the gospel to those willing to listen. As long as the Jews will listen, he will preach to them. When they are no longer willing to listen, he will move on and he will preach to anybody who will come. Now, brothers and sisters, in my experience, there's Christians that like one of these categories of discipleship and don't like one or both of the other two. So you might feel a great passion for educating the zealous. And you see a zealous person, and you're like, man, I want to help that person. That guy, that girl, I want to help them. I, I get zeal without knowledge. I can supply the knowledge and encourage, clap for your zeal. But, man, inviting the sincere but massively uninformed oh that just seems like so much work you gotta take out weird old ways of thinking gotta introduce basic doctrines i don't want to have to do that or with my people that like both of those things why well, i like educating you know the passionate i like inviting the sincere but evangelizing those willing to listen that's terrifying i don't want anything to do with that but notice in the church all three are needed and so all of us have some category of discipleship that we are more or less willing to do. I'll, I'll be with the one-on-one -on -one person and, and kind of engage with them if they can sit across my table. There might be some people who would say, I would never do that. I would never invite this zealous young preacher to come into my home. I can't even imagine doing that. Well, it's, it's good to learn from Aquila and Priscilla. Others are glad to do that, but they can't imagine going and talking to, to someone that they barely know and, and presenting the good news about Jesus. That, that's impossible to even think about. Brother, there's various aspects of discipleship. What we need to see in this passage is the way the gospel advances is through Christian discipleship. Whether it is educating the passionate, inviting the sincere, or evangelizing those willing to listen. Once again, let's say none of us are called to be Paul and to travel the Mediterranean world. But all of us are called to carry the gospel and to function in our own limited scope in the same kinds of ways that Paul does because it's the same gospel discipleship that is the only way that the gospel can go forward in the world brothers and sisters let me just speak this to redemption hill church we do not want a merely attending church when i say we i mean none of us we don't want a merely attending church or even merely a socially nice church. We want a discipling church. 
We live in a church where people are receiving like Apollos. I don't care if you're the most zealous person in the world. You're not yet Apollos. So if Apollos can learn from this couple, you can learn from somebody. We, we want to be receiving this kind of discipleship. We want to be welcoming those who are sincere. We want to be looking for opportunities to bear witness to those willing to listen. We, we want to be doing these things as a church. Listen, when, when, we're, when we're reading God's word, and this is, I understand, it's a little harder in our culture to understand how this happens with narrative. But narrative is not written merely for information. It's not like the only parts of God's word that are authoritative are the parts that are direct commands. No, narrative brings God's authority to us in descriptive genre, but the principles of that description apply, <coughs> excuse me, apply with God's authority to the church today. So Acts, let me put it this way, Acts has authority over our lives. Understood rightly doesn't mean every detail. You're supposed to go to Crete too. No, it means that the principles of Paul's outreach and advance and the way the church functioned in dependence on the Holy Spirit and in serving one another and training one another and discipling one another, that has authority. That's intended by God to shape the church today. The church today cannot look at Acts as merely historical record, but modern-day authoritative description that we can carefully interpret and apply faithfully in the modern-day church. God's Word has authority. It isn't an interesting study. It isn't some, you know, kind of archaic way of thinking about it, religious people. No, it holds itself over us, and it calls into our lives and into our schedules and into that next meeting you have with somebody and the next conversation you have with your sincere but perhaps unconverted child or that next conversation with the neighbor or perhaps that discipleship opportunity with this person that has been coming into your small group and it says look you can reflect the early church and you must do that by the power of the spirit by bringing gospel gospel-centered christ-centered discipleship into the lives of those around you and certainly receiving it from those around you as well this is our calling as a church. Let me ask you this. Who is a trustworthy Christian that you can receive gospel discipleship from? And who is someone that you can express gospel discipleship towards? Now, many of you are already doing this. Certainly anyone who comes to sit under God's word is automatically doing this. You're all doing this. But I, I want to ask more of the personal question. Who is that? Who can you express gospel's discipleship towards if you're not already? N not your discipleship. Not like, here's how you can be like me. I have a great life. Let me help you get yours together. No. A lot of Christian discipleship looks like that, especially among men. Don't do that. I have a great life. If you listen to me, I can get yours wreck of a life totally together. No, that's, who cares? Let's, let's, let's go to God's word and bring gospel truth into the life of someone around us. And who can you receive gospel discipleship from? The river should flow both ways. 
if you want to pour into someone's life, and you should, then someone else should be pouring into yours. Who can you receive it from? What person can you go to and say, look, to the degree your schedule allows, I, I would like to learn what God has taught you in his word. I I'd like you to help me to look at the scriptures together. Simple questions. That should be happening all the time. Simple ways and in, in group ways and public ways, but it's worth asking the question. Is this kind of the river of discipleship present in my life? I, I trust for all of you, many of you, it certainly, it's present at some level, but it's just worth asking the question, where can I, can I increase in perhaps being Aquila and Priscilla to some zealous Apollos, or perhaps being Apollos in a way that I'm helping the church in a particular way, or, or perhaps being Paul to these sincere but, but needing more information uh, disciples that I meet in Ephesus, or, or perhaps being like Paul where I'm, I'm reasoning with people out of the scriptures, wherever they are, whether they're Christians or non-Christians. How, how can I fulfill this calling of the church in my own life? Because gospel advance comes through gospel discipleship. It is God's method for advancing his gospel in the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the many, many ways that the members of this church are already receiving and giving gospel discipleship, gospel-centered training and encouragement and exhortation, Lord, not living isolated lives, independent and self-confident. Lord, that's, that kind of corporate interaction is present throughout this church. Lord, I pray you'd help us to, to grow ever more fully. Lord, to be useful to you, to be useful engines, Lord, in your kingdom to, to pull along the train of gospel discipleship. Lord, we, we pray that by your power you would give us grace to do that. Lord, bless, bless moms and dads as they do this in their homes. Lord, bless husbands and wives as they do this for each other. Bless, Lord, those who do this towards neighbors and relatives. Lord, bless us as we do this in our community, Lord, with loving, gracious, gospel-centered, humble giving and receiving of the truths of your word. Lord, cause us to be a church that builds itself up in love by the power of your spirit, the content of your gospel. For your glory, Lord, let that river run, let the gospel advance. Until you return, all of your people are glorified in a moment of seeing your face. In Jesus' name, amen. We disciple with the content of the gospel and given the calling that we have in God's word to bear one another's burdens in Galatians, to speak the truth in love in Ephesians, to bear with one another with humility in Philippians a thousand other verses. We, we, we need our eyes fixed on Jesus.